The rest of you are with me. You can pull out your sermon notes and open to the book of 1 Thessalonians. That's where we will be this morning. So last week for Father's Day, um, I gave the fathers a treat and we talked about death. And uh, if you remember, Jesus' spin on death is, uh, is similar to his spin on most everything that he talked about. Uh, it's completely different than what we think we know, than, than what we have thought to be true. Um, he said that death was as easy to wake up from as sleep. He said that death is not the final authority, but rather a conquered enemy. Now, as a follow-up to that, my gift to you this morning is that we are going to talk about the apocalypse, end-of-the-world type stuff. People love this stuff. You can tell that just by the movies that are out. When I was growing up, there were some movies that, that came out. Mad Max, these all had to do with end of the world. The Terminator, Planet of the Apes. And then this movie that scared the daylights out of me called A Thief in the Night. We saw that at Kids Club in this evening service that we did. Now there's movies uh, such as Mad Max and Terminator and Planet of the Apes um, and the Left Behind series, right? Um, so there's all kinds of interest in end-of-the-world type stuff. There's even interest in after-the-end-of-the-world type stuff, right? I mean, lots and lots of dollars are being spent on telling stories and really preaching messages as to what could come, what may be there. By the way, I am going to be looking back a lot more than I ever do because we have some technical difficulties with the monitors up front, okay? Um, so if I throw my neck out, if there's a chiropractor in the room, I would be most grateful. You know, we question, just like Christians of old, about end of the time, end of time stuff. So Jesus, you're coming back. When? What are the signs that are going to accompany it? How can I get ready? Periods of times that we go through as a Christian that say this, am I being duped? Am I going to be made to be look like a fool because I believe that you are physically coming back as you actually promised that you were? Here is Paul's nutshell response to those types of questions. His nutshell response that we're about to read is this. You have no need to have anyone teach you about timing of this stuff. We already know it's going to be unexpected. We know this from the Savior himself. Jesus told us no one's going to know the date or time, so you don't have any need on instruction for that. Instead, keep on living out what you already know to be true. Keep on living your life and holding on of, of truths that you already have in your hand. The title this morning is this, Not in the Dark. There's sort of a double ring to this. Look at that. I'm already off. There we go. Um, there's sort of a double ring to this. First of all, we are children of the light. That's, that's a motif, sort of a, a picture that, that the Bible uses over and over. Uh, Christians are children of the light. But secondly, here's the second sort of meaning to it. It's this. It's that we're not in the dark, right? We have been given knowledge that, that other people uh, may not know. Um, now, the whole idea of why the sunflower is there and your little vocabulary lesson, if you've been reading your title carefully, you're going to have to wait on the rest of that. So like death, we have many uh, end-of-the-world type questions, and the, the, the question that's on our mind is this. Who knows? Who really knows this stuff? Okay? Look at this date for a moment. Um, how many of you remember December 21st, 2012? Do you know why that's significant? I didn't either. But I have a phone, and it's attached to Google. So I just Googled this to remember what this exact date was. 
This was the date that supposedly the Mayan calendar was going to end, and on or about this date, the world was going to cease to exist as we currently know it. Now, I remember playing golf roughly three months ahead of time of this date, and I'm playing with this guy, and we got talking on the very first hole. I went by myself, I got paired with a, a gentleman, and we got talking on the very first hole about what we did and this and that, and he said, oh, you're a pastor. He said, well, what do you make of the whole Mayan calendar thing? And we got talking for the next 18 holes about this. This guy was dead set convinced that what's going to happen on or around this date was going to fundamentally alter history for all of time. Now, as we talked about this, uh, this guy was into finance, and he was a well-dressed gentleman. I saw him get away and drive away in a nice car. He was a success by any stretch of the imagination, just like looking at, you know, a well-reasoned person. And I thought to myself this. I thought, you know, usually when I'm trying to, to minister to people, I, I view myself as a, an on-duty taxi at all times. So whether I'm playing golf or preaching this in, the, in the pulpit, you know, I'm, I'm yours, Lord. I'm a witness for you. So I'm always kind of praying and saying, you know, how can I share about this? And when I talk to people in the United States, I always think this. We're going to get to this part about the empty tomb, about the resurrection of an actual person, that he actually was was God in a person's body, and that it has something to do with us 2,000 years later. And I always think, you know, they're going to have, that's a big hurdle to overcome. I didn't think that with this guy. I thought, man, you think something about Mayans is happening. That's an easy, like, like my thing is, is going to be easy to kind of talk about. When I got to the part of the resurrection, I said, listen, I heard all about your views of the end of the, of the world. Can I just share with you what I firmly believe and I'm planning on and living to? I don't think December 12th is the day, and here's why. And so, again, that was probably hold eight or something, right? And we just kind of went, went back and forth and shared a very pleasant conversation. December 21st came and went, right? Myth busted. Here's another one. Um, May 21st, 2011. We're going back in time a little bit. Uh, May 21st, 2011, there's a guy by the name of Harold Camping who wasted a lot of people's money spending money on billboards that said the end of the world is happening on this date. Go look up in Wikipedia a list of people who've predicted the end of the world. This is a list you don't want to be on twice. Harold Camping is on twice, okay? <laughs> Myth busted. Um, you know, like the cycle of movies, in my youth, there was, there, there was the sort of my share of books that came out. Here's one. Uh, 88 Reasons That the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. No joke, there was a sequel written in 1989 called The Final Shout, Rapture Report, 1989. Uh, 1989. As you can imagine, it didn't quite sell as well. Okay, So here's, here's a person who wrote this book, and it went away. Here's a little hint. If you have this uncontrollable urge to be predicting things, here's what you should predict. You should predict that people who predict the end of the world are going to alter their math and reasons the day after their prediction doesn't come true. Okay, I think you'll have a much better track record, and if you just feel the need to predict things, that's, that's the route that I would recommend you going. We are shaped by some pretty fanciful ideas. Zombie apocalypse, Aztecs, aliens, asteroids. What will happen and who knows? Remember from last week that the way we live our life, the way we move forward in life, we are either leaning on divine revelation, someone told us something, and we trust that word to be true, or we are living on human speculation. Remember, uh, if you were here first service, it was a Colin Kaepernick card that I had given to someone. No one in the world could have known what I had unless I told that person what I had in advance, right? 
Um, that's how it is with divine revelation. It's either divine revelation or it's human speculation. We got lots of great answers last week of what I had, including the ring of power. Like maybe I had the ring of power in my pocket, which I thought was really cool. It left me thinking the rest of the week of how I could get the ring of power, and then I snapped back to reality. So why is it reasonable to trust the prophecies that the Bible makes about the end of the world? That's a really valid question. If you haven't wrestled with that, I'd say you're being duped. I'd say that your faith is about an inch deep, and it's going to just be able to be ripped out uh, in no time at all. Here's why I think it's a really valid reason of why to, why to believe and trust current prophecies about the end of the world is to take a look at the prophecies that have already been fulfilled in Scripture. That if you look at the, the whole of the Bible, you see prophecies being communicated and coming true. And here's what's really powerful when, when you start getting into this stuff. It's not one or five or ten prophecies, but thousands, plural, of specific prophecies that were communicated and written down. That's objective truth. You can't go back and say, I didn't say that. That was taken out of context. Written down that then came true. Here's one example. If you take the ones just surrounding Jesus, his life, his, his birth, and his death, and the uniqueness of all of that, here's just one example. Um, Jesus' death is described in details that perfectly depict the method of crucifixion as death. Here's what's phenomenal about that. It was, prophes- it was prophesied by King David and by Micah, catch this, 400 years before crucifixion was invented as a method of killing people. So they wrote down, this is how the Messiah, the promised one, the Son of God is going to die. It's, it looks exactly like crucifixion. And yet crucifixion wasn't around when that was prophesied. Who knows? God knows. God knows what's going to happen with the end of the world. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. You see, God's word doesn't reveal all mystery, does it? No. But the things that he has revealed... Doesn't it behoove us to, do, to be very careful to observe the things that he has given to us? He has gifted us with some knowledge, not all knowledge. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. Follow along with me. It says, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need for anything to be written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, Peace and security then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise us like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So how do we get clarity on the afterlife? How do we have clear-headed thinking about these kinds of things? Let me say this. If you haven't figured out this out yet, um, it's, it's time to wake up. God gave us a whole brain, as in left brain and right brain. Some of you in this room are, are left-leaning brain people. Some of you in this room are right brain-leaning people. It's going to take the whole brain to figure this stuff out. It's going to take the whole brain to kind of capture the imagination that God has given to us about not only life, how we fit into life, but also life after death. That means quite simply that we need both engineers and artists in our church to be thinking this stuff through. 
We need mathematicians and storytellers. We need poets and the professionals. Sometimes churches, especially in Western America, have driven out the artists from the church. Because we say, well, that's too touchy-feely, that's too subjective, how can we know that that's true? And God gave us a left and a right brain so that the whole brain could attack this and go, let's, let's get our heads around this, let's, let's think this through. Poet W.H. Auden wrote this, behind, behind the corpse in the reservoir, behind the ghost on the links, behind the lady who dances and the, mad, and the man who madly drinks, Under the look of fatigue, the attack of migraine and the sigh, there is always another story. There is more than meets the eye. No matter what is professed about the life, about life and afterlife, what you do reveals your true beliefs. I want you to think about this. The fact that um, external beauty, think about this, external beauty is an understandable ideal for those who are unsure about the afterlife. Let me say that again. Um, external beauty is an understandable ideal for those who are unsure about the afterlife. That is, living for the now. Isn't youthful beauty and youthful energy um, raised right now to, to almost the, the, the pinnacle? So, so think about this. Um, there was a book called The Body Project, and it shows sort of the modern fixation with external appearance and the body by comparing diaries of, of, um, of adolescent girls from a century ago to now. So here's one typical girl of the 1890s who wrote this in her diary. Resolved to think before speaking, to work seriously, to be self-restrained in conversations and actions, not to let my thoughts wander, to be dignified, interest myself in others more. Here is her counterpart recorded in the 90s. I will try to make myself better in any way I possibly can. I will lose weight, get new lenses, already got a new haircut, good makeup, new clothes, and accessories. Image goals indeed, right? When you see a hundred years ago to current sort of picture, what you look at is you say, wow, the one on the right looks and sounds and feels way more familiar to us than the things on the left. Yet isn't there something inside all of us that says, wow, I wish, I wish we hadn't left that behind. I wish we hadn't stopped thinking and training and instilling those kinds of thoughts and things into our young girls who were growing up. You see, there is a neon sign in the scriptures, and it's not just neon, but it's flashing. There is more than meets the eye. Do not settle for what you can see, feel, touch, and hear, and taste in this world. And we are not in the dark. Now, we've had this little feature uh, going on with this series, and instead of numbers around the clock face, we have these themes that are sort of repeated over and over and over again through, through the book of 1 Thessalonians. Here are the two themes that kind of leap out to us from our passage. Um, one is this, keep awake and sober. That's lifted directly from our passage, even though it's kind of woven through the whole thing. And secondly, watch for Jesus' return. These are themes that, that Paul kind of keeps circling back to uh, in this letter. Paul uses some really blunt, Jesus-like contrast language in this passage. Didn't Jesus say that there will be sheep and there will be goats, there will be weeds and there will be wheat? And there will be really definitive things that are markers for one camp or the other. And Jesus was 
was giving us an action item in telling stories and using word pictures like that that lodge in our mind. Here's the action item that ought to be kicking in as Jesus is talking about sheep and goats and about a shepherd that's going to divide those two flocks, about weed and wheat, and how and how weeds are going to be bundled up and burned, but not so the wheat. There ought to be this action item going on in our own heart. Where do I land? What camp am, 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 am I in? As Jesus is talking about that, am I a sheep or, or am I a goat? Am I weeds or am I wheat? It's, it's not unloving, right, to tell a plane full of people who have engine failure on the plane to say, look, we need to divide you up into those who have parachutes and those who don't have parachutes, okay? It's not unloving to say, you either definitively do or don't. We want to save you. You are going to die without this parachute. Paul is not afraid to use language that our current sensibilities sounds really arrogant and potentially really unloving. That's the message that we're often given. How dare you try to put me into one camp or the other? Then throw out Paul. Throw out Jesus, because he did that all the time. Why? Because he loved us. So here's sort of the the language that we're going to go with. Children of the light and children of the night. You're going to see this contrast in this passage. Okay. So here's the first one. Children of the light are in the light. Children of the night are in the dark. That seems sort of obvious, but I thought I would put that out there. If you're taking notes, you can fill those in. The end of the world, as we know it, will be different for those who are in the light and those who are in the dark. All Christians, according to the Bible, are in the dark. I mean, all non-Christians are in the dark, love the dark, and are controlled by the dark. That's a giant sweeping statement. I've put just a few passages in your scriptures that, that, that point towards those truths. Satan seeks, seeks to keep people in the dark. Christ, conversely, came as the light of the world. He came to illuminate, to show the path to God. To show the way out of our guilt and our sin. All Christians, catch this, were at one time in the dark, but are now made light. All Christians were at one time in the dark. In Corinthians, Paul's writing, and after listing a group of people who he says are unrighteous and will not inherit the kingdom of God. He writes this, and such were some of you. All these horrible things I've just listed that none of us would want mentioned at our, at our funeral. Such were some of you. And then listen to the language. Listen to the tense of what happened. It's not the person doing something. It's something that was done for them and to them. He says, but such were some of you, but you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not you washed yourself. You sanctified yourself. You made yourself right. It was done to you. This is the reason that any Christian, a child of the light that we know is a Christian, has no bearing, no right, no even whiff of arrogance toward those who are in the dark. It's a position of pity to say, man, I was there. I thought I knew. I once was in the darkness. That's my story. But God rescued me and showed me the light. Here's the second one. Children of the light live in expectancy. Children of the night will be surprised. 
Think about what it means to be in the dark. If someone's in the dark, they don't see clearly. They have no clear judgment. Think about some of the surprises that we've lived through here in this valley that no one saw coming. Dot bomb, right? The popping of the housing bubble. The 89 earthquake. I mean, who saw these things coming? Massive, county-wide, area-wide destruction of some things that very, very few saw coming. They were surprises. Why? We were in the dark. It's not hard for us to get our heads around this. The day of the Lord is described as an unexpected and unwelcome thing for those who are in the dark. It's just like a burglar. If there was a California edition of the Bible, it would be an earthquake, right? That, that it will come as unexpectedly and as unwelcome as a massively destructive earthquake. Paul goes on to say that the pain will come on as certain and sudden as labor pains. Women, don't you wish you could avoid labor pains? Don't you wish that just one out of a hundred, like, it would at least give you hope, right? Hey, one out of a hundred, it's wired into the universe. One out of a hundred, you're scot-free. No pain. In fact, it's going to actually just feel good. It'll feel like a back massage, right? I mean, you just go, man, that would be so cool, because for nine months, you'd be like, maybe I'm that one, you know? But no, every woman knows this. It's inescapable. It's coming, right? And Paul uses that language to say, that's what's coming on children of the night. People will be living in a false sense of security. Think about people who were living in a false sense of security and peace before the flood in Genesis chapter 6. Think about the people who were living in a false sense of security and comfort in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, before Genesis chapter 18 and 19 happened. You see, God's judgment is being held back right now for the wickedness on the earth. When you see evil and you say, where is God in this? Here's the thing that should pop into your mind. But for the grace of God, we would be just deluged with the judgment of God if we're not in Christ. So where is God in all the evil and wickedness that you see? I was driving over to the beach yesterday. I saw a big old RV, and it said, Stop Human Sex Trafficking, and it had a phone number. I just thought, man, what a sick thing that that needs to be written on an RV. What a disgusting thing that, that that's the culture we live in, that, that, that that should be advertised because we need to stop something like that. God's judgment is being held back, and yet people are confidently secure. Isn't it true that each day that goes by can take someone who's in the dark and make them even more confident in their security, even more confident in the peace that they currently rest in? Not so for the children of light. We are looking for him to come. Not surprised, but expectant. Look at verse 4. But you brothers are not in the dark. So this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. Look back in in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. This is from a couple of weeks ago. We are not ignorant about death. Therefore, we grieve differently. Paul's wanting to communicate some things, remind some things. Remember, death is as conquerable as a deep sleep to Jesus. It's not the final word. Jesus has the final word. Word. So we're not ignorant about that. Now look at our, our, our text today. He wants us to be fully aware. And this fully aware about what's coming at the end of the world has to do with us living differently. Now the question comes, how could we possibly know so much? How could we as a Christian uh, s- say that we know this to be true? Here, here it is. 
We've been told in advance, and we trust God to keep His Word. Therefore, if you read the Scriptures and you say, how does marriage work? And you look to the Scriptures and you say, God invented marriage. God ought to know how it should work. I'm going to live my life based on how God says marriage should work. I'm going to table things that seem right to me now. I'm going to table things that I'm being told from other sources, and I'm going to trust God on this. How does the end of the world work? How does life after death work? Same exact line of reasoning would be there for us. We take God at his word and we count him to be faithful. Now, there are so many clues for us that a definitive end is coming. This, this hourglass is, is actually really a good, a good sort of picture of that. We know that there was a definite start. All of our observations back up the biblical account that there was, in fact, a big bang, right? That God created, that life bursts onto the scene. We, we see that and observe that. Secondly, we can observe that time is passing, right? We have different markers, different cultures. Ethiopia has a different calendar completely than us, but we all track time. We all know that time is moving on. We also can observe that there is a limited amount of energy in the universe and that it's winding down. Geeks call this the law of entropy, right? It's the second law of thermodynamics, that things wind down. Every time you wake up and you're a little bit sore, more sore than 10 years ago, that's a reminder, a second law of thermodynamics, right? You are winding down, right? Some of you in your heads are giving a hearty amen right now, but you're so in pain that you can't even shout that out, right? Finally, we know that the amount of sand that rests on the upper portion of the hourglass is is changing. We can also speculate about how much time is left. Um, here's, a, here's a really good image, because you can't really see clearly how much time is left. That's a pretty decent picture for us. We have these observations that sand is, in fact, pouring down, and that there is going to come an end. And this is why stories that talk about the apocalypse ring something deep in us. We go, yes, we get that there, this seems to be coming to a point. Is it zombies? Is it the Aztecs? Is it asteroids? It's something. So we kind of have this sense that it's coming. Here's what I know to be true. We are closer to the end, to that last sand falling through, than we were yesterday. That's what we can take to the bank. Remember that the way that we live screams our deepest beliefs. So do we live like this? It's true. Look at verse 6. There's a so then. So then offers sort of the implications of what it means to be a child of the light. Verse 6 is this. Let me get to the right chapter. There we go. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing." Here's the next one. Children of the light remain sober and awake. Children of the night are sloshed and sleepy. Some of you were with me on a Mexico trip several years ago where after throwing this big Friday night fiesta that we always do for the kids at the end of the time, we decided let's leave for home right now. 
Let's clean up, tear down everything we have to do. Let's leave now in hopes that the border crossing would be a lot quicker than waiting for Saturday morning at 9 o'clock. So after a week long of ministry, we packed up and we left about 1230, you know, after midnight or 1, 1 a.m., something like that. I remember driving on I-5 somewhere past the grapevine, and I knew I was really tired. I mean, tired like I haven't been in a long time when I saw unicorns playing Monopoly on the horizon. I'm driving along, and literally I could not distinguish where the sky ended and where that boring, long I-5 road, you know, was there. And I thought, man, I am really tired. I knew I wasn't sloshed, right? I was just really, really sleepy. So how do you keep awake when you're tired? I used to pull a lot. Yeah, that's, that's, that, that, to me in Family Feud, that would be on the top five. Coffee, right? Stick your head out the window for a while, right? Talk to someone. Slap yourself in the face. Turn up the music, right? Does any of that really work for long? Not really. Drive-by braille starts happening, and then you're like, I need to get off the road right now, right? Here's a bigger question. How do you stay awake in life? How do you keep awake in life? Because you can feel yourself drifting, can't you? You can kind of see those markers coming, and you go, man, I'm, I'm starting to drift off. We live in the valley of distraction. There's so many different choices and lots to do here and lots of people to do it with. One of those is partying. Drinking and partying is sort of a big joke until it's no longer funny. You know why we cheer sobriety? Because drink has a way of, of enslaving us, Right? And when that gets to be kind of more than we can handle, then we label ourselves something, and all of a sudden we get out of that, and everyone in society cheers that, says that's a good thing, especially the loved ones of that person. Here's what I know. Sleepy and slosh seems to be becoming our national pastime. There's sort of a sense of our American culture that is heading that direction. This is nighttime behavior. Christians ought to live different. If you live sober and awake, you will be counter-cultural. But let me warn you, sobriety can be challenged by a lot more uh, than things that you drink, snort, or smoke, right? You can be drunk on fame, drunk on position, drunk on pleasure and play. There's all kinds of things that can get us off track from thinking clear-headed. Here's a warning that Jesus gave to the sloshed and the sleepy. It's found in Revelation chapter 3. He says this, wake up! And strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, here's this picture again, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Let me ask you this, what characterizes your life right now? Would you say that you're full of care or careless? Would you say you're a weekend pleasure seeker? Or would you say that you are a clear-headed sun seeker? Children of the light live expectantly. Our attention is trained on Jesus the sun. Enter the sunflower. The sunflower is a pretty phenomenal plant, as I learned this week. The sunflower contains uh, sort of a message in their design. Uh, if, if you're a math geek, then you're super excited about it because you realize that the, the spiral patterns that make up the design of the sunflower are consecutive Fibonacci numbers, okay? Secondly, the little florets, each little floret contains what's called the golden angle of 137.5 degrees. 
It sounds really smart. I just looked it up. But but over and over, I would see these guys, you know, Christian and non-Christian. It's just like people geek out of this and go, this is crazy stuff. Here's the second thing. It grows at an incredible rate. Here's why I wanted to point it out, though. The sunflower tracks the sun. That is, it moves with the sun. Plants who do this are called diaheliotropic. Try it with me. Diaheliotropic, right? That's just a fun word to say. Plants that do this track the sun. The reason that sunflowers can grow at such an incredible rate is that they do this. They expose themselves to the radiation of the sun longer than other plants. Does this not describe the Christian? I mean, the rapid growth of a person's life. The moment they expose themselves to the sun, S-O-N, it begins to to dramatically change. Look at verse 5 of our passage. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and sober. Suddenly in the text, Paul kind of kicks it up a notch by bringing in this sort of military motif. I think he does this because he's kind of cueing people in. This is not going to come easy. If you want to become a Christian and you like the path of least resistance, good luck. This is going to be a fight. You're going to go against the grain to live this way. How are they to arm themselves in this battle? They're to arm themselves the same way that Christians have been arming themselves throughout all of the centuries. Faith and love and hope. You see, the armor and the weaponry that we put on for God's battle is fit for the battle that we're in. It's not a physical battle, it's a spiritual battle. The enemies you face are not other people, but Satan himself. Other people are duped. They are chained, enslaved, in the dark, in his kingdom. Now he's talking to troops that have already been employing these tactics. They've already been in the battle. Look up at chapter 1 of this same letter. He says, We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning in our prayers, remembering that before God, our Father, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see those three components? And now we see this in verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Friends, faith and love and hope, this is our calling as Christians. These are the things that we're, we're to be living out. He goes on to tell them it won't always be this way. There is a point. There is an end to this battling temptation, to this running counterculture to the rest of the world. Look at verse 9. It says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are destined to win in this. Therefore, keep going. So what does this helmet, this hope of salvation, rest on? I want you to look at verse 10, and if you circle in your Bible or write in your Bible or highlight on your iPhone, I want you to highlight four words that we're going to look at. Verse 10 says this, Who died for us so that. For us so that. Those four words contain a ton of theology in them. A ton of what the Bible is talking about is wrapped up in Jesus who died for us so that we might live with him. Let's look at for us for a moment. Jesus was killed in the most horrific way imaginable, crucifixion. Crucifixion was a method reserved for the worst criminals. And by the time Jesus showed up in the point of history, this method had been perfected by the Romans. It's brutally depicted and accurately depicted in the movie The Passion of the Christ. It's so disgusting that it was finally outlawed in the 4th 
century, only to be picked up again by the most evil people in all of history. Pol Pot in Cambodia crucified people. Hitler crucified Jews in Nazi Germany, World War II. So disgusting that people said, we need to outlaw this, but then people picked it back up. The fact that millions of Christians celebrate the murder of Jesus is disgusting unless you know what Jesus accomplished on the cross. It's a gross and hideous and bizarre thing. And if you've not given thought to it, you profess trust and celebration of the cross of Jesus Christ, you ought to pause and give it thought. So what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? For means that his death was a substitute for us. Jesus died as a substitute. That is this. Because he suffered and died the death sentence that your sin deserves, you can legally be dismissed by a just God. Jesus took the penalty that was due you and took it upon himself in your place. That's what, that's what a substitute does. You know, Jesus willingly died on the cross. Of all the great things he did, teach the foolish and heal the sick and welcome the outcast, he came to die. Read John chapter 12. John chapter 12, he is saying, this is why I've come. And he set his face toward the cross in that moment. Up on the screen are just a whole bunch of verses. I could have gone on and on with this. Isaiah, the prophet, predicting the Son of God, the Messiah that would come and save people for all of time, written centuries before Jesus was born and walked the earth, wrote this. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity. Don't let the familiarity of those words that we sing, talk about, read at Christmas time, don't let that escape you. Those words for are very important. He bore the sins of many and made intercession for their transgressors. Romans 4, he was delivered over to death for our sins. He was raised to life for our justification. While we were sinners, Christ died for us, and on and on it goes. For us, so that. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, died for sinners, so that. Isaiah 53, we could have peace and be healed. Romans, that we could be justified. First Peter, that we could be brought to God. Galatians, that we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. And First Peter, he bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He died for us so that this is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. This is why Christians celebrate the gruesome murder of Jesus Christ. It didn't happen to him. He chose to go this route. And then in our passage today, whether we are awake or asleep, Because for us, so that, we get to live in Him. That is, whether we die or are still alive, when Jesus bodily returns, visibly returns, we will always be alive with Him. You know what that means? It means eternal life starts right here, right now. The eternal life that God has promised is already begun. We're living it. It only gets better from here. Let's go back to the sunflower for just a moment. How is a sunflower born? Pick up your seed for just a moment. A sunflower is born quite simply by a seed that goes into the ground and dies, as it were, right? It's buried. 
Only in that way is a sunflower able to come. It's cut off from the living. Then it is raised to life. We looked at this last week. What kind of bodies are we going to have in the resurrection? Paul compared this to our current bodies. This glorious body that we work so hard on. We're so bummed when it changes. And he says, look, this is the body that you have going in. It goes in and dies, and you are raised to an altogether different glorious kind of body. Next time you're near a sunflower, man, just look at one seed and look at that sunflower and go, man, what a, what a picture. I wonder, again, do you see left brain, right brain people? You need these in, in the family. You need these as you're walking through a field to have both of them thinking this through. Your very life depends on death. Your very life depends on the death of Jesus. Catch this. Your, own, uh, your life in Jesus depends on the death of the old you. This transaction that goes on is that the old you dies so that you might be, remember what Jesus said, born what? Again. So my own story would look something like this. I was born in 71. I died in 1988. I was born again that same year. I'm going to die at some point if Jesus doesn't return, and yet I'm going to live forever. That's a summary of my life. What's yours? How would you write out your own story in this kind of language? Let me invite the band to come on up right now. You know, you can live expectantly, looking forward to the end, knowing it's not really the end. Let me be really bold and risk offending some of you in this room today. And this isn't my judgment. This is God's judgment. But let me talk to people who are children of the dark this morning. People that the Bible characterizes as those who are in the dark. Here's what's amazing. You are being beckoned. You are being wooed. You are being invited into the light this morning. Romans chapter 10 says this. The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your mouth, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Do you know that there's no requirement to get up and walk an aisle at a Billy Graham crusade to get saved? Otherwise, that would mean we have to do something to sort of help Jesus out with that whole cross business. Wasn't there a thief on the cross next to Jesus that's going to be with Jesus in paradise that very day? He didn't yank himself off, do any good deeds. He didn't yank himself off and get baptized. He didn't yank himself off and attend one church service. He died almost in his sin. And yet evidently, he confessed with his mouth and believed in his heart. And that's all it took for this transformation, this born again, to become a children of the light. Let me talk to children of the light for a moment. Such were some of you. Man, the worst of the worst. I love looking at your faces on Sunday mornings because it reminds me of that. I know some of your stories. I know where you were. I know where God rescued you out of. It's incredible. It's so encouraging for me to think on that. 
How do I live out my diaheliotropic calling? That's what you're all wondering right now. I know that's been on the tip of your tongue all morning. Let me give you two things. Lift your prayers to God. This is turning toward the Son wherever He may be. Jesus is on the move. That means your prayer stance ought to be different, right? If we're to pray without ceasing, we better not always be on our knees folding our hands, bowing our heads. It's a dangerous way to drive, right? You ought to be praying without ceasing. That is, you're tracking the sun wherever the sun may take you. I'll tell you this. Living a life tracking the sun is never, ever, ever boring. Amen? Man, in your prayers, you know what you're going to get sometimes? You're going to get this message back from God. Grow up. Man, grow up. You're going to get this message. Wake up. You're going to get this message. Leave that stuff all alone. I've got you. You're mine. That's never, ever, ever going to change. As you lift up your prayers to God, let me just, let me just, 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 just jot down Colossians 3 for a moment. Colossians 3 says this. It says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Tracking the sun, right? I know of no better way than just to keep in an attitude, a heart of prayer. But it goes on to say this in Colossians 4.2. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Watch this. Being watchful in it. Being watchful in it. That as we pray, we're not always praying about past stuff or present stuff or future next week stuff. That we are watchful in our prayers. You know, an action item that you could employ this coming Wednesday is this. Wednesdays this summer from 7 to 8 p.m., one hour in this building, we are just gathering for prayer. doesn't mean you have to come to the church to pray. That's nonsense. But there's something powerful about coming midweek, right smack dab in the middle of your week, saying, I'm just going to commit an hour to prayer. We don't talk. We don't discuss our prayer requests. We don't have theology lessons about prayer. We just get together. We circle up and we pray. You're invited to come. It's open to the whole church. Here's the second thing. I encourage you to share this with others. Verse 11 says, encourage and build one another up. One of the ways we do this is through songs. You're about to sing a song, participate in a song that is able to encourage and build you up. This song that points toward the return of Christ, let that become your heart's cry. As a fellow child of the light today, I'll say this, I need you. Brothers and sisters, you need one another. It's not the pastor's job to encourage and build people up. I'm one part of this family. We are to build and encourage one another up. My question for you, children of the light, as you leave today, who are you going to share this with today? Who is it that you're meant to encourage and build up in light of the truth, the reality that we just looked at? Many of our community groups are on a break for summer. It doesn't mean we're on a break from the one another's. In fact, it actually opens up more time potentially, time you normally devoted to come to community group to say, you know what, I'm going to take that hour and a half that normally was carved out for formal meeting time, and I'm going to go look for ways to practice the one another's. Let's pray. God, thank you for the rich truth that you give to us. Help us to just lose control and the need for control to know everything and take what you have given us and run with it, play with it, work with it. God, as we sing right now, I pray your name would be praised.